The Low Post is presented by Amazon Music. Did you know you could be listening to this episode of The Low Post ad-free on Amazon Music? And now, The Low Post. Welcome to The Low Post podcast where I am back from lovely Chicago. Not so lovely the drive to O'Hare. Just a complete nightmare. Chicago, get get on it. It shouldn't take me 90 minutes to get to go O'Hare no matter what time of day it is. The lottery happened. I was in the room. Victor Wembanyama will be going to the San Antonio Spurs. And let me tell you, Jonathan Gavoni, I have been in that lottery room so many times that they ask me, dude, you're here again? Aren't you tired of this? I am the Elgin Baylor of the drawing room, and I have never been in a room as tense and nervous and frantic as that one. Not the Zion lottery, not the AD lottery. I was there for both of them. This was something altogether different. Everybody understood the possibility of getting this guy and what it means. What was your initial reaction to the Spurs getting him? And I read your piece today where you talked about how, in your opinion, and from what you've heard about people around the league, at least the people who are not bitter that they didn't get him because they had a chance, that this is a a great fit for him. What have you heard about that? What was your reaction? I was happy for him because, you know, I spent a lot of time with him now the past few years and with his family and his camp, a lot of calls, you know, setting up all the, you know, different Victor appearances that we've had that we have still more coming here that we're going to see here on ESPN. And I was just excited for him because, you know, I mean, they these guys have no choice whatsoever about where to go. And it's such an important um, thing for them to to end up in the right spot and i think it's really important for the nba and for the the basketball industry and for global basketball and so i was i know that he was really excited to end up in san antonio you could see his reaction you could see the family's reaction privately they were they were all saying the same thing that that's really where he wanted to be um and i think it's just great for the for the spurs you know just been toiling in mediocrity for for years now and they were looking for that, you know, that face of the franchise and and they got it now. They have this brand new facility that they're opening, the Sports Science Center. And, you know, what there's no better guy to, un, you know, to cut that ribbon than 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 Victor and for Pop, you know, like one of the, the great figures in basketball here of our generation. And just to see him, you know, kind of get rejuvenated for for a couple more years, hopefully, and 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 you know, usher in this talent and go out on a on a strong note. I think it's great for basketball. So um, I I was happy for him, and um, I think you know you were in the in the room. We were on set. Um, you know the watching it. You know, be, kind of be unveiled and all the team officials and agents and all the players are in attendance. Everybody except for Victor. And there was an incredible amount of tension in that room, too. And just like the gasp that you heard, you know, when Detroit fell from from one to five. And then just, you know, I mean, the lottery is is an incredible event, you know, just like seeing kind of the the face of a franchise, people's careers, you know, being turned on, you know, with something that they have just zero control on. It's it's remarkable year after year. I love it. It's my favorite thing. It's just beyond ridiculous and in the best possible way. And this is not to um, demean the Spurs at all. The Spurs record speaks for itself. They drafted Tony Parker, 29 or whatever it was. They drafted Manu Ginobili in the late 50s. They swung an all-time trade for Kawhi Leonard at 15. Um, The record, and it goes beyond that. But it is a reminder that for as genius as you are, 
as good as you are at your job and finding Manu playing in Italy and getting on him at age 18 and all this, it's Tim Duncan and it's Victor Wembanyama and it's the luck of the lottery and none of it is possible without that. And like you said, the Spurs, ever since the Leonard situation went sideways, this is a team that's just been in total purgatory and they made a decision over the last 18 months. We don't want to be in purgatory. We want to bottom out. We want to bottom out with this draft is our target. And they had an 86% chance of not getting the guy that everybody was targeting and a 14% chance of getting him. And they got him. And now they have a nice core of Wembenyama. Devin Vassell, I think, is going to be a great complimentary player. He's got to work on his playmaking a little bit, but I like him. Keldon Johnson. Keldon Johnson's contract is going to be a ridiculous value contract. It declines to $17.5 million in 2027. I love Sohan as a jack-of-all-trades. They still have to get some guards and figure all that out. And by the way, everyone's like, are they going to make the playoffs next year? How fast are they going to hit the accelerator? I don't know what you've heard. My guess is that they are not going to rush this at all. They're going to take a year, see what they have, see how they think it's best to keep Victor healthy, see how many games he can play. Yeah, maybe they'll add a veteran point guard here. I mean, it's slim pickings in free agency. They have all these picks in the bank from Atlanta and other places. Like, I don't get the sense yet that at least for the next calendar year, they're going to go like whole hog. We got to start winning big time right away. Maybe in a year, if he proves really good, like all-star level good immediately, that changes it, but that's the that's my best read on it. What is yours? I agree with you. I don't see them cutting corners here and making a short sighted move just to try and get the A seed next year. I mean, like you said, they've got a very strong core here with um, Vassell, Keldon Johnson, Branham, and Jeremy Sohan, who to me is the perfect complement for Victor Victor Winbanyama. That's exactly the kind of guy you want next to him. And I just, but I don't see them tanking next year. Also, I think that they're going to kind of let the cards fall as they do. And they're going to try and compete. And they're, you know, if they make the playing game, great. I mean, a lot of it is going to come down to how many games Victor is going to play, not because he's going to get hurt, but because I think they're going to bring him along slowly. And I think they're going to, I I totally agree. I, I don't know where to even begin setting the over under on games played for Victor next year. Like, it's I wouldn't set it that high. They're not going to tank. You're right. And that's going to be a fight, though, because Victor is going to want to play every game. And so there's going to be some push and pull there where they're going to have to explain to him long term what they're trying to do, because this is a guy that did not miss a single game this year. Uh, and so he's going to you're going to have to explain to him, hey, Victor, you're healthy, but we're scratching you tonight. You're going to be in sweats on the bench. And he's going to be like, what are you talking about? I, that's not the way I'm wired. So we'll see how well, that goes. I, I, I wanted to ask you about that because you and, and Brian have spent a lot of time and especially you around Victor and his team in France. And you you published a wonderful story with Brian this week about the making of Victor Wembenyama and his work ethic and him watching Pistol Pete videos and him remaking his hand position on his jump shot independently. People should go read that story if they can. There was one quote in there that I wanted to make sure to ask you about, and I can't remember which member of his team said it. I don't have it in front of me. I think it was one of his agents said, Victor will not be put in a box. You're going to have, and, and I, the second half of the quote is something you're going to have to work around what he can do. I wanted you to add a little more context to that. 
how that played out in his career in Europe because he changed teams several times, as you outlined, with an eye on his development, with an eye on making sure he found a team that was going to be tailored to his development. And B, is it possible to translate that mindset to San Antonio? Like, like how, how does that translate to the NBA that won't be put in a box thing? I think it's possible to translate it because they need a face for the franchise. They need a guy that the the organization revolves around and he's the star. And I think that's what he was looking for. And that's what excites him so much is that this is Victor Wembanyama's team right now. And they're going to build around him. Now, that doesn't mean he's going to be doing all these stupid things, you know, like they're going to steer him because Victor is a guy that you can coach at the same time. And he picked Vincent Collet, not because he wanted to go to some circus show where he's going to shoot the ball 30 times. And to be clear for people who don't know, that is the longtime coach of the French national team, who is his most recent club coach in France. Yeah. Vincent is a tough coach. He's going to, he didn't go somewhere where they're just going to roll out the ball and let him do whatever he wants. And so I think it's going to be a similar thing with pop at the same time. Pop is going to coach him. They're going to go at each other. But Pop has the gravitas to tell Victor, no, you know, like I coached Tim Duncan, Tony Parker, Manu Ginobili. This is how it's going to be. But at the same time, the Spurs need Victor to be great. So they're going to do what it takes to put him in a position to be successful. And when they say Victor would not be put in a box, that means he's not going to be this guy that, you know, is a traditional center that you just post up you know, 30 times a game. Uh, He wants to have that freedom to be on the perimeter, to create his own shot, to play pick and roll, to take a defensive rebound and push the ball 94 feet and, you know, throw a a skip pass to the corner. And so that that's what he means. And that's what he hasn't always had throughout his career. And he's told me, he said, when, when I have been put in that box, things don't go well. And that's when you maybe see him mope around a little bit and you know not give 100% on defense and so that's those are the things that the Spurs are going to need to work through he's gotten so much better in that regard with his competitiveness and and his willingness to do the little things to defend and box out and rebound and 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 be that uh you know that guy that plays both ends of the floors I mean honestly the best thing that he brings right now is his defense he's learned how to impact the game on that end of the floor and so that's what they're going to work through is surrounding him with the right pieces to make sure he gets the most out of himself. You and I were both in Chicago for a lot of the week. Obviously everybody, the whole NBA is there minus Bob Myers, whose contract negotiations are ongoing. We'll say we'll see, we'll see how he, I think he was planning to go there uh, later this week. It might be, it might be there today for all I know. It's a big deal, by the way, Bob Myers contract negotiations and the athletic reported late last night that they are far apart and the Warriors and the rest of the league are bracing, was the quote, for Bob Myers to leave the Warriors. I heard that same kind of pessimism being whispered around the combine. We'll see. It's going gonna, it's gonna to impact their negotiations, but that's neither here nor there. Let me tell you, and I'm sure you've heard this too, the level of exuberance about what this guy is going to be in the NBA and how much hype is too much hype. So here's what's too much hype. Chris Broussard, who I've worked with and like a lot, said yesterday that if he is not better than Anthony Davis and Kevin Durant, or if he's, I think it was, if he's Anthony Davis, Kevin Durant, another player, that will be a disappointment. There's no sentence in the world where being Kevin Durant is a disappointment. Kevin Durant is like, at worst, the 15th greatest player in the history of the NBA. So 
That's too much hype. Here's the conversation I had with a lot of people. It's not how good this guy is going to be. It's how fast he's going to get good. Um, Is it going to be like a slightly slower burn? Like it's going to take two or three years for him to become an all-star? Or is he just going to walk into the league and become a top 20 player immediately? There are people who think that that's in play. There are other people who are like, A, he's not... Like Tim Duncan was 22, right? Wembanyama is 18. Not going to be 19, whatever he's going to be. Um, He's got to fill out a little bit. Let's pump the brakes on that. But there are people who think he's going to be immediately a great player. And if not immediately, it's it's just a matter of time. Like that's that's the level of like what people are saying on TV about his potential is not hyperbole. This is you will not find anyone I I can't find anyone in the NBA who's like maybe he'll just be like decent. That's like doesn't exist. Does it? I haven't heard that. I haven't heard that from anyone credible. Um I am in the camp that thinks he will compete for an all-star nod his rookie year. Maybe it's an injury replacement or or whatever, but I mean it's going again it's going to come down to how many games he plays, which we're we're going to see. Uh but I think just the impact that he's going to make defensively is going to be immediate. Just with Dude, the, the, I mean, the that's what stands out. I mean, you've watched him way more than I have. 7 foot 5, 8 foot oh. wingspan. The feel for the game, the anticipation skills, the you know the mobility, the fluidity to cover ground on the perimeter. He can switch, he can drop, uh, you know, he can play in a in, in a in a zone and protect the rim. He is he, the zone, exactly. I mean, like just good luck scoring on that guy. He just puts his arms in the air, and it, you know it, he's going to be an impactful guy. And then under the floor, and then you talk about what he does. Offensive, okay, he's probably not going to be a great shooter from day one, partially because of shot selection. He's shooting in the in the low 30s or the high 20s or whatever on the season. I mean, he he's a great shooter who is figuring out which shots to take right now. Uh, but I think the NBA game is going to suit him much better than the European game. Just we saw it in the Ignite games, you know, 36 points, 37 points. Um I think he's going to be a 20 point per game guy from 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 day one. So I do think he's going to compete for uh, an all-star nod and I'm, it's going to be really really fun to watch the shot blocks that catch everyone's eyes are the ones where he like rotates from the rim to the corner and blocks a three those are awesome like don't get me wrong those are ridiculous the ones that make me go like oh my god is when he's guarding someone at the elbow and he's he's guarding them he's at the elbow so he's at the foul line and someone drives baseline and seems like they have a layup and he makes that rotation so fast and he's so long that like the ball doesn't even leave the poor guy's hand like it's it's not even up on on the way it's not even on the way up it just is in Victor's hand and and those are the blocks that are going to be more available to him more often than those like spectacular corner closeout that's like an every possession kind of rotation that's there it's 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 remarkable what he can do. Let me tell you what the can I tell you what the room was like for those who don't sure. have ESPN Insider. So there Why are do you fourteen. Not have ESPN Insider, come on. There are people who don't want to pay for it, and that's fine. Um, so there are fourteen ping pong balls in the machine, one to fourteen. There are a thousand combinations of four numbers, and each team owns a certain number of those combinations based on how bad they were the previous season. So the worst teams have a hundred and. 40 each, I think. Um, and they have all the low numbers. So like one and two 
and three is Detroit, San Antonio, Charlotte. If the, if your four number combination has those numbers in it, um, it's if the one that comes up has those low numbers in it, it's going to be one of those two teams. Ball one, 14. Everyone's in. Everyone's in right away. 14. 14 is the highest possible number. In the back row, Teresa Resch from the Raptors, who had the second worst odds, elbowed Bryson Graham from the Pelicans, who had the worst odds, and was like, yo, we're in. We're in. Now, they didn't. It's not loud. It's not like I heard that. They told me, they told me afterwards, we're in. Second ball, five. Okay. Most, most teams still in. No low numbers yet. Third ball, eight. There's 10 seconds between balls. Let me tell you right now. The 10 seconds between 14 and 5, 5 and 8, and 8 and the last ball were borderline excruciating because almost the whole room is in at 14, 5, and 8. And everyone has this eight-page document. Every team representative has this eight-page document that has all the combinations and who owns them. Everyone is like flipping through, rifling through papers. Like people are shaking. And you know who had it? The best, not maybe not the best chance, but okay. So 14, 5, 8. Every single Washington Wizards combination started with 5. They had no numbers lower than 5. There were 11 balls left in the hopper. Six of those 11 balls deliver Victor Wembenyama to the Wizards. Six of them. Most of the high ones. Brett Greenberg, who's the assistant GM of the Wizards, realized it right away. And if you watch the video, he leans over on his sheet. And he's like, and he's leaning, like hunching over on the sheet, gripping it. And then the last ball comes up and it's two. And everyone's like, two. Okay, that's going to be one of the worst teams. So most of us just got eliminated. Brian Wright, the Spurs GM, is sitting there like he's trying to figure out who wins it. And the Rockets guy elbows Brian Wright and is like, man, that's you. That's you. And that and that's it. For for like 30 seconds, the whole world was in play for Wembenyama. And then it went to the Spurs. Did you read the thing about R.C. Buford's chair? I did. So let me tell people about it. So I run out. So they let us out of the room. We're locked in the room. We're not locked in the room. Like if, you, if someone had a bathroom emergency, they might let us out. But we have no phones, no laptops, no anything. They let us out as soon as the show's over. Everyone scampers up to the ballroom looking for the right people to get a quote. And I see R.C. Buford by himself. I was like, I got to go see hi, say hi to R.C. And I ask him the stupidest question possible. With the only The only question. She's like, did you flash back to the Tim Duncan lottery in 1997? And I'm expecting some pithy Spursian, like, you know, we're really fortunate. We're just going to have to develop another great player. And RC looks at me and starts laughing. He's like, you're goddamn right I did. And I said, what do you mean? He said, well, let me tell you this story. I was sitting in my office when we won the 1997 lottery, and I was sitting in a blue leather chair. It's my lucky chair. From that moment on, it was my lucky chair. When my daughter went to college X years ago, I gave it to her. She took it to college. Never, it's, it's gone. She's the blue leather chair belongs to her. 3 p.m. Central Time ish, R.C. Buford arrives at his hotel room in Chicago, opens the door. The chair is in the room with a card on it because it was his birthday and it was a birthday card. And he's like, that's the chair. At that moment, the lottery gods were like, you know what? You've gone the extra mile. He's going to the Spurs. I just can't believe that 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 chair needs to be, it needs its own private room at whatever the arena is called now in San Antonio or in the practice facility. All right, that's the end of my tales from the lottery. (laughs) Then then we had some pasta salad and some sandwiches and watched, watched the television show.
and some people were sad and some people were happy and Brian Wright was especially happy. There was disappointment that he didn't react. There were, he was criticized in the room for being too professional. People wanted a lack of professionalism and he was very professional and everybody was universally disappointed. We got a great reaction on the set. <laughs> Let's go. I mean that was I've never seen that before. That was amazing. That was good and Peter Holt uh the the Spurs governor I, I snuck a peek at the envelope and just got a head start on the celebration. You saw the number two envelope. It was like teal. Mm, I'm like, okay, yeah. here we go. Said, yeah. um, <laughs> well, it was teal because the number two pick is the Charlotte Hornets and the number three pick is the Portland Trailblazers. And as I wrote uh, that night, as soon as Portland came up three, the whole league began speculating about um, are they going to trade this pick and package it with something to get Damian Lillard veteran help because the expectation is as of now unless dame in this is the like fourth straight year of saying this like changes his mind and really forcefully asks out which there's no indication that that's happening they're going to try to win they're going to try to win around him they're going to re-sign jeremy grant and this pick will be in play and joe cronin like pretty much acknowledged yeah i'm going to listen to offers for this pick but charlotte at two that's where the draft gets interesting you released your mock draft right after the lottery and you have Brandon Miller going to Charlotte over Scoot Henderson. And now there's this big debate over can Scoot and LaMelo work? If not, should they just take Brandon Miller? Should they try to flip flop picks and get an extra asset if they want Brandon Miller? What is your latest read on Charlotte's intentions? I, you know, the best part about being here in Chicago is that the, the access that you have to every single person in the NBA and honestly, like it's a near consensus in the gym that Charlotte is going to take Brandon Miller. I'm not ready to go that far because knowing Mitch Kupchak, the workout is going to be very, very important there. So Scoot Henderson has an opportunity to go in there and blow the doors off in his workout. And I think he has that type of talent. I've watched him work out individually. I've seen him practice. He's an exceptional talent. Just the level of just the body right away when he walks in the gym, you're like, holy cow, this guy is huge. Long arms, um, you know, incredibly explosive and has very, very dynamic shot making ability in a workout setting, which, you know, he's not a great shooter at this stage. But I think that's going to alleviate some of the concerns around. Do you have enough shooting with LaMelo? And Scoot Henderson. And I think LaMelo is the type of guy that can coexist with almost any player. I mean, he's a Halliburton type passer, cutter, off ball mover. He loves, you know, hitting ahead in transition. He's not a ball dominant guy. He's also not this incredibly explosive athlete that you want creating his own shot every single possession of a game. So I don't subscribe to this theory that Scoot and and LaMelo can't coexist at the same time. But I just think that you look at their wing depth at the same time, and you look at the season that Brandon Miller had. SEC Player of the Year, first-team All-American. Uh, you know, Mitch Kupchak was front and center for his best game of the season. He dropped 41 points at South Carolina. He was very, very excited after that game, I was told. And Scoot Henderson had some – he did not have the kind of season where you're like, Okay, he locked up the number two pick. It's a done deal. He he only played half the games. He looked like he was in cruise control half the time. He didn't make a lot of progress with his defense, 
with his shooting, with his decision-making. He really opened up the door for a guy like Brandon Miller, who's like every team in the NBA is looking for this type of player. 6'9", big guard, can handle the ball, pass out of pick and roll, make shots off the dribble, defend multiple positions, rebound. I mean, that's what people are looking for. At the same time, he is not in great shape right now, so I don't know how great his workout's going to be. His interviews have not been great, I've been told, both publicly and privately with NBA teams. And so hmm. the door, I am I think there's, I would put it 60% Brandon Miller at two, 40% Scoot Henderson. I think it's, it's and, and I do think they're going to have trade conversations too. I, I'd be shocked if they traded. It'd be, they'd be out of their minds, honestly. Like the best thing in the world that could have happened for them is getting the number two pick. But then there's also this kind of cloud hovering over them. You know, who's going to own this team in three months, six months from now? You know, does MJ decide to, you know, hold on now? I mean, it's a, for them to move up from four to two is huge. I would assume the value of the franchise went up a little bit, not as much as had they gotten number one. So a lot of question marks here. And, uh, you know, you talk about Portland. I don't see them trading it either, honestly. Interesting. Uh, I think. Yeah, I, I think they'd be very happy with Brendan Miller or Scoot Henderson. I also think they're going to kick the tires on the Thompson Twins, on Cam Whitmore. I think this is going to be uh, a, a, a process here where they're looking at a lot of different options. Uh, you know, so and I, I, I don't wonder. It, so you you would you would predict they keep the pick if the draft were tonight? Yeah, I think they would keep the pick. Yeah, that's interesting because look. What trade are you going to make that makes them like a finals contender right away? You know, like, I mean, that's, I don't think that, you know, Joe Conan just signed this extension, you know, like he's, he's there long-term Mike Schmitz is there long-term. They want to build for the, I mean, they are committed to Dame 100%, but at the same time, they have this incredible window. Shannon Sharp is, he looks like he's going to be an all-star Zach. But it's not going to happen next no. year. Yeah. So th- this is like the best thing that could have happened to them. Moving up to three, getting a guy that in two or three years from now, as the Dame window closes, is ready to make that leap to being an all-NBA player because it's not going to happen for Scoot Henderson from day one also. I mean, so guards especially, it takes them a while to get good. It takes them a while to impact winning. And so I, just, I mean, maybe I'm wrong. We'll see what kind of trade offers are out there well, for them. But I don't see them trading the pick. It's interesting. You know, we're in Chicago when the Morant stuff happens, right? And that reminds everyone of the 2019 draft and how Zion just never plays. And six, eight months ago, Memphis and New Orleans were like the two great rising powers in the Western Conference. And there's a sense now that like, huh, maybe the West will be kind of quote unquote open in the next couple of years. And so you asked me what trade makes them a finals contender. And on the one hand, well, Hey, the West, the West is open. If we could package number three and Anthony Simons, could we get Mikhail Bridges? I don't, I don't think that gets you there. Could we get OG and Anobi? Not, not sure that gets you there. Does that make you a finals contender in the West? Maybe on the other hand, maybe the West is so wide open. You try to thread the needle like you just described and collect all these young guys Maybe one or two of them pop at the same time. Maybe Nurkic gets healthy and has a great season. And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, we're pretty darn good. But if I'm Damian Lillard and I'm 32 
And I'm looking around. I got Simons and Sharp and Brandon Miller, Scoot, Scoot Henderson, and like all these guys are exciting. Are they that exciting to me? I, I don't know. Maybe they are. And I also think like the degree to which the West is quote unquote wide open, like Denver ain't going anywhere. Um, Phoenix isn't going anywhere. I know everyone's disappointed in them. As long as they have those two dudes, they're not going anywhere. Clippers and Lakers, you know, they'll go for it. Warriors, we'll see what happens. Like, I, you know, it's a really interesting choice to me what Portland does there. And at the same time, Houston at four, you have, uh, you have Amon Thompson going there, right? Yes. Everyone is very excited about him. The Houston stuff, first of all, I think Ime Odoka will do a very good job there just getting that house in order. Second of all, I just don't really get I don't get any of the noise coming out of Houston. I don't really get the infatuation with bringing a declining James Harden back on a potential four-year max deal. I don't get any rumors at all. This has been reported elsewhere, not by us. I have not heard this independently, but that like they'd listen on Jalen Green. No, I don't. That might be. That might mean again. I haven't heard that. That might mean they listen if you like. Just, it's just ludicrous. But I would not. I don't get the. I don't get I don't get any of that. Can you enlighten me on Houston? Because if I'm them, I'm like, what? Just I I know they owe their pick next year, but I'm not rushing this just for the sake of rushing it. I haven't heard that stuff, but honestly, if you look at it from the outside and you're in that front office, you're wondering if we have just an okay year. If we lose in the first round of the playing game or whatever, we get swept in the first round of the playoff. That would be I- amazing for Houston next year. I mean, you hear rumors about, you know, are they looking around at adding something to the front office? Do they, you know, like, do you have a job in a year from now? And that's when front offices tend to make mistakes is when they don't feel long-term security coming from the ownership and they decide, I need to make a win-now move right now. And then you start to look at their pieces and all that. They don't have their draft pick next year if it's top, top four protected. And so that's where I could see them trying to get as good as possible right away. You know, you you keep hearing that hard into them, you know, it's likely if not a done deal. And so I will say I will say the dock firing. The whispers going around Chicago when that happened was, ooh, I wonder if that if that complicates Harden's path to Houston a little bit, if that makes it more likely that Harden will come back to Philly, I don't know. I don't know James Harden. I don't know James Harden's people like that. So who knows? I think both possibilities are probably still in play. And to me, like, what would have happened if Houston won the lottery? My, my, I was, this is what I was polling people the day of the lottery. If you're the Rockets and you win the lottery, does that make you more, if you're the GM, does that make you more or less likely to go after Harden? What would you have answered that question? More likely. Really? I would have gone less. I would have gone like, we got Wembanyama. Let's wash our hands of this 32-year-old guy. I know he's a franchise legend. Let's just pivot totally the other way. You you think, let's try to like actually make a huge jump right away. I think Victor is ready to help you win games. I mean, I think that that's how you make a jump defensively is bringing a guy in with an eight-foot wingspan who blocks everything. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, and again, he's not looking to lose, you know, so you want to get that train going and not, you know, keep this vicious cycle of losing and more lottery picks and lottery picks. That's not how you get on the right foot with him. Passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak 
performance from superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED headlights, and more. Whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has got you covered. With over 122 million parts, 122 million for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. You can now stream the most MLB games on DirecTV without a satellite dish. Yes! Catch the clutch hits, strikeouts, grand salamis, web gems with nothing on your roof. So who's there up there, whether it's roofers, Santa, birds, old-timey chimney sweeps, moody teenagers, thrill-seeking raccoons, watch out for them, you name it. They won't find a satellite dish, but you will find your MLB games on DirecTV. That means DirecTV is your home for baseball this season. Root, root, root with nothing on your roof. Yes, stream your team. Call 1-800-DIRECTV or visit directtv.com. Sign up today. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Can I ask you about two other teams that I'm curious about? Sure. Team number one, the Orlando Magic, uh, who were over 500 for about the last 55 games of the season, kind of backslid a little bit their last three games, but I think proved themselves a legit, decent team. And and they've been overpatient trying to win games. Like At some point, they're going to have to just do something to try to win games. They have the number six pick. That's their pick. They have the uh, number 11 pick courtesy of the Bulls, the end game of just an all-time disaster trade for Chicago. Um, what is the early buzz on? I mean, t- to me, they have cap room. They have those two picks. They have a window, I think, now is the time to hit the gas around Wagner and Bancaro and, and some of the other pieces they have there. I mean, they could package those picks and move up. They could package those picks for a veteran. They could just keep the picks. I mean, everything's in play. I have no idea what they're going to do. What do you think? Yeah, they have a lot of flexibility. And I, and that was what people were questioning. They said, well, what is 6, 11, and one of their young players, not, you know, obviously Paolo or, or Franz Wagner, uh, get you? You know, how high does that get you? Um, and or what kind of veteran? Does it get you? Who's available for them? And so, like, I I think that they're ready to take the next step and and try and start winning some games here. You know, they're not going for the lottery again. Again, like next year's draft, it looks to be on paper pretty weak at this point. So, I mean, people have that incentive to to try and and be better next year. And I think they're going to be one of those teams that's going to try and make a push. What are they going to do specifically? I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm fascinated by another thing is everyone now knows what the new CBA is that it's looming. And some of the teams with cap room or in the middle or just some executives who kind of study this stuff and try to try to sort of game plan it out. The anticipation is that some of the expensive teams, not all of them, some of them in anticipation of the crunch that's coming when all the new rules kick in, will ch- there, that there will be a couple, a few gettable good players that those teams shed just to get off money. And if you have cap room and flexibility, you might be able to get them for cheap. So I think a team like Orlando, San Antonio even, they can look to pick off a player like that for very low cost instead of 
going whole hog with these picks. I think there's a lot of optionality in play. The other team, everyone wants to know what Utah is going to do. Everyone. Because Utah has up to just a bonanza of cap room, depending on a couple decisions. They have all the Minnesota picks, all the Cleveland pick picks, a Philly pick, another pick I'm forgetting. And in this draft, they have nine, that's their pick, 16, that's a Minnesota pick, and 28, I can't remember whose pick that is. Three first-round picks in this draft. And everyone's wondering, are, are they going to try to speed this up more than they anticipated based on exceeding expectations last year? They have a great coach in Will Hardy, Kessler, Markin, and the whole thing. I couldn't get a read. I couldn't get a read. I was in the lottery room with Ryan Smith. I tried to get a read. I couldn't get a read. And I think the question they'll have to ask themselves is, I think they'd be happy to try to win more games next year and hit hit the accelerator a little bit, not floor it. But the question is going to be, well, well, who's the guy? Like, It's not like they're going to go trade for Bradley Beal or somebody that just doesn't fit their timeline. I think who's the guy is going to be tricky for them. But I bet they could – I'll bet they'll look around at some names. Yeah, I think that they were surprised a little bit at how how good they were. I don't think that necessarily was the plan there. Um, so I just don't know – they're not going to be any worse next year. It's just when you play that hard, you're going to win games in the NBA and you, they've got really good players, you know, like with, with Larry Markin and especially. So I, um, yeah, I mean, but they, they've also got some real holes in the backcourt that they need to fill. I think that they're going to build slowly. They're going to, you know, they're going to, they have these three first round picks. I, I anticipate them using them, maybe taking some swings on talent, you know, trying to hit, a home run because they have that, you know, they have the stability there to to not have to make a, a win now move right now. So, yeah, I think they're they're in like you know one of the best situations of any team in the NBA right now. Yeah, I mean, if you look at their books, Clarkson player option fourteen two probably declines that. Tht who went bananas in the last month of the season, player option eleven. That's interesting. Rudy Gay player option six and a half. I'm going to go ahead and check that one off. <laughs> and then a Linux deal is non-guaranteed for the most part. It's like 75% non-guaranteed. Like they have a lot. They just got a lot of stuff, man. I, I don't know what they're going to do in their Utah. So it's not like they, if you're going to trade for someone, it's going to be someone who's under contract for a good number of years. Can we go back to the LaMelo Scoot thing? Sure. So we had Scoot on NBA Today in Chicago yesterday. It was just me and Malika and Scoot. And I asked him, this is, I had, it was, it's the obvious question, but I said, you know, you're either going to play with Dame or you're going to play with LaMelo, two guys who have the ball a lot. And he said he did what he's supposed to do, which is say, well, I can play with anybody. But he, you can tell when someone's just saying stuff and you can tell when someone with bravado believes it. And he's like, I'm an awesome off-ball player. I don't know why people don't think like, I can't play off the ball. My jumper's going to be fine. I can cut. I can move. I love playing defense. And, like, he was animated and he was into it. I know he's giving the answer he's supposed to give. I have no real issue with, like, a double back court like that. The one thing I would push back on is I thought LaMelo did veer into ball hog territory last year. I didn't like the way I, – I felt like he got away from himself as, like – because he's an incredible passer. And he did average eight and a half assists – he took 21 shots per 36 minutes. And I think he was like one of two or three guys in the league who took that many shots per 36 minutes and less than four free throws per 36 minutes. He was kind of like chucking a little bit. And 
And he only played 36 games, obviously, because of the ankle stuff. It that That's just interesting to me. And that was a lost season for the Hornets. Just injuries up and down the roster, the Miles Bridges situation. It was a season to chuck. If you want to chuck, chuck away. I just am interested to see how he plays next year and how he would, how he would adapt to a Scoot Henderson. I'm, I'm like less interested in how Scoot would adapt to a LaMelo ball than the other way around. Zach, they're already friends. I mean, LaMelo is friends with everybody. I mean, there's not a single basketball player who doesn't like LaMelo ball. They're already friends off the court. And, and I think LaMelo would be very excited to have a guy like Scoot who some people wonder, like, does he maybe pivot towards maybe like the Donovan Mitchell route? You know, like not being, um, you know, like this, you know, natural point guard. But I think he's wired to score. And and LaMelo, to me, is naturally unselfish. So I, I think that that combination could work. I just don't know if they want – that's the direction that they want to go in. I mean, I think they just – they're probably tired of losing, you know. And and it, it's those two guys are not going to win you many games next year. And, again, you start to talk about the stability of, you know, like your position, you know, the front office long term with ownership and all that. And that's where things get complicated, you know. So, like, that's where people maybe make a short term decision that's best for them, knowing, hey, we got to show some progress and we, we need to, you know, maybe make a run to the AC. Like, they've, you know, that's their historical track record. So, that's where, you know, a lot of people think Brandon Miller is just a more natural fit for their roster. Um, and that's why, you know, it's you have to have some creativity to put it together a backcourt of Scoot Henderson and LaMelo Ball. And I just don't know if, you know, people see that vision there in Charlotte. Are there any other teams in the lottery that we didn't talk about that you think have interesting decisions to make or that you had a hard time pegging for your, your first mock draft that you wanted to talk about? Yeah, I mean, the situation in Washington is really interesting. You know, like, how do they go about their pre-draft process, you know, without having a lead decision maker in place? I mean, how do you conduct workouts? How do you, you know, figure out, you know, what you're going to do with Christoph Porzingis and Kyle Kuzma? So, like, I think they need to hit the accelerator here at some point and figure out, you know, like, which direction they're going in so they can, you know, decide what do they want to do with that eighth pick and what do they want to do with, with Brad Beal and with Kuzma and Porzingis, you know, like, do you try and be bad? Um, do you re- go through like an actual rebuild, which they probably has been overdue there for some time. So I think, you know, that's one of the conversations like, what is, who is Washington going to hire? First of all, you know, like they've been keeping things pretty tight, you know, like you hear Trajan Langdon, you hear Michael Winger, you hear Elton Brand, you know, like, but nobody has a real post on like, what are they actually going to do? So that's going to be an interesting one for the basketball nerds. Those three names, Trajan is the one I know least of those three. Those three names suggest to me that they are zeroing in on the right kind of people. Those are, those are all people based on what I know and what I've heard. And now I've talked with them that I would trust to run my team that are going to be creative decision makers, courageous decision makers, guys who are going to be not a, particularly Elton will go against the grain if he thinks it's the right move. And I think you need that. Calvin Booth is like that too in Denver. Um, and and I think that has served the Nuggets well when he was the number two and now he's as the number one. Um, that's interesting. Uh, 
Really interesting week in Chicago. I only got to spend three or four days there, but the GM meetings were interesting. Did you see some of the stuff that came out? I, I had it in my column about the GM meetings. Two-day draft. Are you up for a two-day draft? I think that might... I wonder if that's like connected to a potential third round. Do they want to make it a two-day TV event? I, I honestly think the second round, it goes by way too fast, and I do think they're leaving something on the table there with like Jokic being drafted during a Taco Bell commercial. You know, I mean... It just I forgot. It's it's hard to keep track of all the picks being swapped and all that. I mean, yeah. to give it a little bit of breathing room, every kid, you know, get hears his name called, and then they can actually talk about him on the the broadcast. You know, having the five minute window, I think, would be a lot better. And so, like, can you stretch that out to two days? I, I don't know what the format for that. Maybe, like, I guess that means the first round would be ten minute picks, fifteen minute picks. I mean, there's so much happening during the draft with the trades and all that and you know woes going nuts and so i do think that there's you know there's a window there to make it something bigger you know more similar to the nfl draft i'll just list them here a couple other things that came out of the gm meetings i was told the most lively topic of discussion was have we become too much of a scoring league how can we help defenses even the score a little bit i don't know what concrete solutions there were for that um flopping Big movement to like, we got to start penalizing flopping again. Love it. All about it. How can we make the last week or two of the season less awful? Um, which is an interesting conversation. There, there have been ideas about um, after a certain point, if you're in the lottery, like you get credit for winning rather than losing. I don't really know how that would work. And I think it'd be hard for fans to understand. And I think the seating juggling really got on people's nerves this year with all the like every team looking four games ahead and being like that team's going to lose on purpose so we should lose on purpose in this game trying to find ways to make the higher seeds more valuable and also make the lower seeds less valuable maybe in terms of like your ability to pick your opponent the easiest one is just let every top seed one to three pick their opponent so that you can't control who you're going to play that idea has never caught on and if you want to propose something more aggressive, like I've heard, do you should you get you know five home games if you're the number one seed? I don't think that's ever going to happen. Should should you get more TV money if you're in the top two or three or four seeds than if you're I, I like I, I don't those seem a little crazy to me, but I thought those were interesting. Really, I'm jealous you're still there. Yeah, last day of scrimmages today, and then the pro day bonanza tomorrow. Uh, you know, go home for a couple of days and get on a plane, go to L.A. And then four more days of pro days. Pro and days. Then, yeah. And then the, the U16 USA basketball training camp. I'm looking forward to that. Cam Boozer. Um, so, yeah, no, it's uh, it's a fun time of year for sure. Yeah, you don't get to linger too much on this draft. You're already like you're already 2024, 2025, 2026. That's why you are who you are. Jonathan Gavoni, go down to the lobby at the anonymous hotel and meet up with all the NBA people who are there. I was talking my talking my mouth off the last three days there. Have fun. Thank you for your time. Enjoy uh, Chicago. Thanks, Zach. It's demon time on Prize Picks, where you can now win up to 100 times your money. That's right, 100, 100 times, times your money. With as little as four correct picks, you can turn $10 into $1,000. Demons and goblins are the newest and most exciting way to play at Prize Picks. Squares marked with red demons or green goblins get you different payouts. 
And as always, Prize Picks is really simple to play. You can make your picks and submit your entry in less than 60 seconds. They even offer injury insurance so that your entries stay in play even if one of your players gets injured. Quick withdrawals, easy gameplay, and an enormous selection of players and stat types are what make Prize Picks the number one daily fantasy sports app. Just download the app today and use code LOW for a first deposit match up to $100. That's code LOW on the Prize Picks app for a first deposit match up to $100. Prize Picks. Pick more, pick less. It's that easy. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facility safe and your people safer. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. All right, let's talk about the actual basketball that's going on because it's conference finals time. One game a night, you just sink your teeth into it, you devour it. Nuggets Lakers resumes tonight. So we're not going to hit it at length here. I might do an episode tomorrow if tonight's game is interesting enough because there's not, not a lot of point in talking about a game that's going to happen soon. But we'll see if Jokic can solve the riddle of Rui Hachimura. Spoiler alert, I think that he'll be okay doing that. But the Lakers, they just play their ass off, man. They play their ass off. I think this is going to be a really fun series. I think tonight is going to be a really fun game. Lots of adjustments and counters and all that stuff. But let's talk East. Miami. Boston game one in Boston. I think ESPN's analytics, or I think Udonis Haslam called them assolytics or something like that, gave the Miami Heat a ninety or a 97% chance of losing this series. And the Miami Heat just continuing one of the great borderline inexplicable runs in the history of the NBA postseason. Storm into Boston with their 26th ranked regular season offense. And hang 123 on the Celtics. Just a ho-hum 16 of 31 from deep. Took more threes in the Celtics, which is somewhat surprising. Jimmy Butler, sure. I'll give you 35, 7, 5, 6 steals. Sure. Caleb Martin, 15 more points. Kyle Lowry turning back the clock. This is, this is just crazy. The heat in the regular season... 112 points per 100 possessions, 25th in the NBA. The Heat in the playoffs, 116.6 points per 100 possessions, four and a half points more. That's third in the playoffs. And when you consider that the level of competition is all good teams, and I know they haven't, well, they faced the Bucs, which is a great defense. The Knicks are just okay. It's just incredible. And if you look at, like, how are they doing this? Is their shot selection any different? No. Turnover rate's a little lower. Other than that, free throws, offensive rebounds, no. They're just shooting better. They're shooting better from three. That's really all it is. They move the ball like all hell. They cut and they move and they screen until they get what they want. And Jimmy Butler is just is just being the best guy. Chris Herring, how are you? Zach, I'm doing pretty well. And yourself? Did you pick Celtics in five, six? I mean, what, what was your pick? There's just no – I just have – it's – I just can't – my brain is still digesting that the Miami Heat are here. It's in, it's really incredible. Yeah, I, I picked the Celtics in seven, but it's Ooh. really – but, but you know, honestly, it's mostly out of respect for the Heat. It's 
you think about it, and obviously there are questions about it now that I think are going to intensify about the the Joe Mazzulla, Eric Spolstra matchup. Uh, you know, a guy that is in this for the first time. And, you know, I'm sure we'll get to it in a lot of your podcasts today. Uh, there's that aspect of it. Yes, the Celtics have more talent on paper. So did the so did the Bucks. You know, granted the Bucks were without Giannis, but um there's a factor here that just keeps the heat in it. I think it a lot of it gets down to their identity. They know exactly who they are. And, you know, when we talk about a team that plays more zone defense than any other team statistically over at least the last 20 years or whatever it is, this is a team that knows who they are. This time of year, when we're talking about the playoffs, that goes a long way. I don't know that it it, it makes you a favorite necessarily, uh, but also as we've seen now for at least one round, maybe two, maybe this would be a third, you know, you can't really put a ceiling on um, on a team that knows exactly what they are, who they are when they have a closer like Butler and a guy that can just impact a game the way that Jimmy Butler can. Jimmy is just, it's just unbelievable. The shot making, hunting Derek White, hunting Peyton Pritchard, whose appearance in the rotation is just uh, bizarre to me. I don't understand how Peyton Pritchard jumped Grant Williams in the rotation. I continue to think that Grant Williams must be stealing people's lunches out of the refrigerator at the Celtics team facility because this banishment makes no sense to me. Not that it's like a big deal. They're in the conference finals. Um, Boston, I thought, gave him switches way too easily. But part of the reason that's happening is because teams used to go under on Jimmy Butler pick pick and rolls to avoid switching. And it. they're like terrified to do it now. They're terrified to give him any space. Yeah. And I thought Robert Williams on switches gave him too much space. And he was like, oh, I got, I got like a cushion here. This is like a 13-foot jumper for me. Easy speezy. I thought Rob Williams right. had a bad game in game one defensively. Um. And I just want to shout out Jimmy Butler. Here's just a partial list of players that he has been the primary defender on during the postseason. Giannis, Brooke Lopez, when they needed someone to guard Brooke Lopez because they wanted Bam on Giannis. Oh, maybe Jimmy can do that too. Jalen Brunson. Okay, then Jimmy you know, has the ankle issue. we got to take him off Jalen Brunson. R.J. Barrett. All right, well. Can you guard Mitch Robinson for us and Isaiah Hartenstein because we want Bam on Julius Randle or we want uh, or, or or and and do that? Okay, sure, do that. Jason Tatum, okay. Jalen Brown, sure. Every position, every guy, he's ducking nobody despite the fact that he is single handedly carrying the Miami offense. Every guy, every position, every type of player, and again last night, both Boston wings. You need him to guard Horford, sure. I can do that. Like it's. The guy is having an all-time great playoffs. And other than that, give me your one big-picture takeaway from Game 1. Something that struck you, something you're going to be watching at uh, in Game 2. Just one issue you're really dying to talk about. I mean, I think the the big thing that I noticed is just Marcus Smart's playmaking in that first half. And when this Boston offense is rolling working properly, spaced properly, has floor balance, what all they're able to get and who all is able to kind of uh, really shine, Marcus Smart in particular, in a first half versus when those things aren't right. And I think that's kind of what you saw in so much of that third quarter. Uh, and a lot of the Celtics players said it last night, at least just reading the quotes and reading people's stories and stuff like that, that they weren't right. They weren't going right. Uh, you look at the fourth quarter, I know Tatum scored, he didn't take any shot attempts. 
and so it just kind of, you know, it felt like they tried to, in the last three or four minutes, kind of force all the stuff that they weren't doing before. Tatum with his turnovers, looking indecisive. And, and credit, obviously, to Miami for their, their defense and exactly what I was saying before, knowing who they are. But Boston will look back at the film and and realize there were a lot of things they could have been doing better. Certainly in the third quarter, they were making defensive mistakes and stuff like that. Um, but really just, you know, it, it was very much like that that meme that became popular over the last year of the 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 two people sitting on the bus, one person looking out smiling and the other just looking like they're filled with horror. And that was what the first half and the second half were for the Celtics. I think that they can do better here. Uh, Miami has to shoot themselves in the foot to really keep themselves out of it. Butler will always keep you in a game. will have you with an opportunity to win a game, a series. Uh, but Boston can't do certain things wrong and still expect to win these games. Uh, we saw this happen last year, by the way, too. I think exactly a year ago to the day where they gave up you know, a, a, a big – quarter where they were outscored by more than 20 um, to essentially start the series and and found themselves losing. So uh, I don't think it's unfixable, but I, I I do think that Joe Mazzula has to keep his head in the game. I don't think Peyton Pritchard can just play and, and get hunted with, with you know. The, the thing about Peyton Pritchard is this is the second time. Now, now he's in the rotation. The first time he played after being not in the rotation was like a we're game five Philly. Let's find mm-hmm. a spark. He's not involved on offense at all. Like, there's no point in p- playing him if you're not going to try to use his shooting somehow as a screener and have him pop out or flare out. He's just a non-entity on offense who's getting picked at by Jimmy Butler, who's a nasty mf'er bully. And again, they're just given that switch, and you can't give him that switch. He's going to eat Peyton Pritchard for lunch, and you're going to send help, and he's, they're going to hit open threes because the Heat have apparently become like the freaking Warriors from 2019 in the playoffs. Yeah, I mean, and, and literally, I want to say it was the first play Pritchard was out there. Butler ends up getting him. Butler scores. Uh, he got him later in the game, too, where I think, you know, the Celtics realizing, okay, Pritchard's not going to be able to guard him send a second guy at him, and so Butler picks that apart. They score off that. Lowry got him later on a, on a play, and, and he hits a shot over him. It's just kind of, like you said, I kept wondering, was there more to that? And I even tweeted, I think, at one point last night, uh, this is why I couldn't be a coach, because I wouldn't have had uh, Pritchard appearing in the first quarter, let alone the fourth quarter, on my bingo card. Someone that has more or less been out of the rotation for the most part. You use him in spots mostly you're using him in garbage time when these games get to be blowouts but when he was there early i figured there was a purpose to it maybe there was and they just got off schedule but grant williams to me playing against a physical team a guy that i thought did pretty well uh, i don't when- i don't i don't get it i just i don't joe mazula just doesn't like him like Ime Adoka loved him like the celtics have a great top seven they want to play eight and they keep just doing this eighth guy roulette between Sam Hauser and Grant Williams and Blake yeah. Griffin appeared out of nowhere one game and never never came back. If, if you're making me choose an eighth guy, I'm choosing Grant Williams. But that's not, again, that's not going to decide. Maybe it, it could be a factor, but it's not going to decide the series. Look, let me be clear. I still think Boston is going to win this series. They're just, they're just better than Miami. But the more Miami does this, <laughs> right, <laughs> the more you're like, okay. I, I Miami's got to be tired of us, man, because like they're just like, yo, how how many times do I have to teach you this lesson, old man? And it's you know they 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 looked apart. The can I just say how impressed I was 
by Bam Lowry looking like Toronto Lowry. Yeah, I don't want uh, any more Bam slander. I don't want to hear any more like, why doesn't this guy so average 25 a game? He's got to back it down. Into Bam is awesome. How many times do they have to get deep in the playoffs with Bam scoring 18, 20, 22? His shot making last night in the third quarter, Dude. their shot making as a whole at the beginning of the third quarter to close that gap from double mm-hmm. digits down to three before even Bruce Struce hit a huge like contested mm-hmm. three. Bam had two floaters and like drew a foul. I, Bam out of bio... He's never going to please the guys, I don't know, never, but not in the near future. Is he going to please the people who are like, why isn't he giving 30 points to this guy and that guy? That's just not who he is. You know what he's going to do? Win a lot of goddamn basketball games because he's one of the best defensive players in the NBA. He's a playmaker. He pushes it up the floor. And and there was also a stretch in the second half when um, when they put love on – when the Celtics go small – they, with with only one of the bigs, they put love on the big guy because he can't guard wings in space, and they put Bam on Jalen Brown, and you get that cross match sometimes on the other end. And when they got it, he beat Tatum for an and one. He played his little bully ball. Bam is awesome, and Kyle Lowry. I have the stats in front of me because he looked man. like dead man walking in the regular season. Regular season, he shot forty one percent, thirty four percent from three. That's up to 45%, 38% from three. And he's just got his pick-and-roll game going. He does the thing where he goes around the screen, snakes back the other way, takes yep. two with him, and dumps it to the big guy. The craziest stat of the entire playoffs, Chris Herring. Are you ready for this? I looked it up on second spectrum because I saw that the Heat are like plus... I don't even know what. I think it's like plus 17 per 100 possessions with Cody Zeller on the floor. And I'm like, What? How? What does he do? He sets screens. That's what he does. The mm-hmm. Kyle Lowry, Cody Zeller pick and roll. Who thought that was going to be a thing, by the way? They've run 37 pick and rolls in the playoffs. This is per second spectrum. 1.81 points per possession. Wow. And, and 1.46 <laughs> directly, directly right out there. of it. Like, what Good is Lord. going on? Good Lord. You know what though, Lowry and and I loved that he he did the interview with um inside the inside the NBA guys last night after the game. I mean he deserved it. He played a great game. All their role players basically did. I think Love might have been the only guy that didn't finish with fifteen. Like everybody basically had you know th- this was just a, a great game for the Heat. But he basically said, look, ever since I've been coming off the bench for this team, they need me to play differently. It's not a high-powered offense, obviously, and so they need him to play with with boost, with with tempo, with pace. Uh, playing him off the bench gives him more ability to do that, playing fewer minutes, uh, and allows him to be more aggressive because he kind of has to be the guy just based on who they've got out there. It's it's a bunch of undrafted guys. Shout out to Caleb Martin and a lot of these other guys, by the way, that have still you know shown up and and played the part and looked aggressive in moments. I thought. Martin was great. Struess obviously had really big moments in this game. But Lowry, I mean, it, it, it's a situation where so many people credit Butler, and rightfully so, given what he has done and what he did last night. But, I mean, they just they needed big moments at times during this game. And whether it's a shot from Struess or it's a play from Caleb Martin, you know, looking like a, a defensive back at half court, and or, or whether it's Caleb Martin finishing a, a, a crazy layup, like a Kyrie-style layup, um Miami just shows up and and you know it's it's knowing who who they are it's Spolstra 
knowing how to go in in these first games in these game one situations on the road as they've had to do as an eight seed and, and coming out with victories. Uh, they've just been so impressive. And no matter how it plays out, like I think the fans just have to be so proud of that team. Uh, and and really, Boston can't, not that I think they will, but they can't sleep on this situation because at a certain point, you know, it's the elephant in the room based on the way that Boston was guarding to start out. Um, I understand Butler is a destroyer of all worlds. It, at a certain point, after Milwaukee gets knocked out by them, uh, after they have flares and, 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 and opportunities in the New York series, you just kind of have to trust that Miami, the team that was number one in three-point shooting last year, but wasn't that good this year, that at a certain point that like maybe maybe they're making up for lost time of what the regular season was in the postseason, that they're a good enough shooting team. I don't trust the uh, second spectrum stats on it, but if you look at them, like we were talking about Struess and how he made the contested three. If you look at the second spectrum stats from last night, all... 16 of the threes that Miami made, according to Second Spectrum, were with them being either open, meaning they had at least four feet of space, or wide open, meaning that they had six feet or more of open Struce, space. Struce definitely hit one that was not wide open. Or, exactly. Or open so that's, why I'm, that's why I'm saying that I know that the Second Spectrum stats were not fully accurate, but when you go back and watch most of these shots, most of them were uncontested. And again, if you're basing the decision not to contest a lot of these threes and and some of them were just mistakes where Brogdon at the end of the third, just a backbreaking three that they allowed a Struce to end the third. Brutal. He took Zeller Brutal. On, on, on the defensive play. Zeller never shoots threes. Um, and so it leaves, uh, it leaves Struce wide open to take one at the end of the quarter. He hits it of course, cause he's wide open. Um, but at a certain point, like you can't say, man, Miami is just, you know, this poor shooting team that, the luck has to run out at some point, right? Like it doesn't necessarily have to. They so were here's the thing: team last year, Miami for the playoffs is, I'm saying only in quotes, only shooting 37.5 percent on threes. They're not shooting some crazy outlier like 43 exactly. percent anymore. They got cold during the Knicks series. That has normalized. This is just good, sound offense, and. People make fun. I never have. I'm like a Kool-Aid drinker of it, of heat culture. Hashtag heat culture. This playoff <laughs> I wrote run, a, Nick, a book on the Knicks. I can't do that. <laughs> it der it's derived from what I wrote my whole book about. <laughs> this, this playoff run should put to bed all the sarcasm about, yeah. oh, the media talks up heat culture like it's a thing. It's a thing. It's not some secret sauce or magic elixir that they have. What it is is... First, you've got to be tough as hell to play here. We're going to mm -hmm. practice with our pads on. We're going to hit people. We're going to put your knee pads on. We're going to hit people. We're going to practice for real. you got to be tough. And that toughness translates to how many times do we watch these teams? The, the lights get bright and Milwaukee just collapses. Boston will go through half of every game playing aimless, purposeless basketball. Teams get shook in some of these moments. These guys don't ever ever mm -hmm. and part of that is the guys they get part of that is Jimmy and they just keep making the right play if the right play is Jimmy just slowing it down and backing down that's fine if the right play is let's get the machine moving and pass and cut and screen and put Bam over on the sideline for a dribble handoff we'll just keep running through that running through that running through that low turnovers that's another thing that helped them against Boston and yes. one of the reasons Boston only got 29 threes up but 
and, and part of the heat culture is like Riley gets those guys. Spolster gets those guys. And part of it also is like the coach is going to be, is going to run the show. Like you're not going to be able to show up to coach. You're going to not going to be able to loaf your way through things and complain about it. And they set that standard when LeBron, Bosch, and Wade went into Riley's office and implied like, hey, would you blah, blah, And Riley's like, no, that's the coach of the team. Huge Deal. turning point. Deal. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a real thing. And they just, they play these possessions late in the game with a calm, a calm, a calm intensity, a steady intensity. They don't melt down. They just keep playing. Um, on Boston, my litmus test for this team has become defense. And because I've just come to accept that within the same game, they will have a stretch like they did in six minutes of the second quarter where their offense is humming, where they're mm-hmm. doing all the right things, hunting Max Struess, running pin downs off Kevin Love's guy to get mismatches, to get mismatches they can drive and attack the paint and kick out. And then they'll have an eight-minute stretch where Jalen Brown's like, how about I ISO on Bam with 15 on the shot clock and just let everyone else off the hook? And that's just the way it's going to be. When they play clean defense – they can play a scattershot offensive game and win almost every game. Last night, I thought they played a C, C-plus defensive game. It wasn't as bad as game one against Philly where they just, like, were not present. I, I thought I thought they overhelped on a lot of situations and gave up threes. And to me, like, there was one, there was a couple where Jimmy Butler was going one-on-one against Robert Williams, and I think Smart was another one, where he's picked up his dribble 13, 14 feet from the rim with four on the shot clock. He's going to take a fadeaway jumper, and all of a sudden this late double team comes from the corner, and a three-point shooter is wide open. The most, the most, the, the biggest one was Caleb Martin's three with mm-hmm. two minutes left to put him up seven when they swarmed Jimmy Butler. I think you just got to let Jimmy Butler take a fadeaway and not give Caleb Martin a catch-and-shoot three. Caleb Martin, by the way, shooting 39% on threes and 71% on twos in the playoffs. Fantastic. Um, there were there were two or three where Robert Williams was guarding Bam. And I realized Bam is is giving him problems and, and can make those shots. Same thing. Like, you got to make him make a 14-foot jump hook, I think, over and over again before you start late doubling. And, and the same thing happened against the Bucks last year in game one of their series where they were swarming Giannis on when he's taken fadeaways and they corrected that after after game one. I thought they were a little too exuberant doing that. You mentioned that completely inexcusable Struce three to end the third quarter, like a brain fart of epic proportions. Jimmy Butler back cut Brogdon on a co- totally dead possession late in the shot clock, I think in the first half. There were just too many of like just something between a mistake and a total breakdown where they just they just weren't clean. When they play clean defense for 46 or 48 minutes, they win. I thought, and, and Miami, that's not to take anything away from Miami. You give them an opening, and they freaking bulldoze through it and take advantage of it. They gave them a lot of openings. I mean, just between Tatum and, and Brown, I think, what was it, 10 turnovers that they had? Uh, that was as many as Miami basically had as a team. Uh, we, you know, Miami can't make too many mistakes in this series and expect to be all all that competitive because of the talent gap that I think is relatively evident, but they, they know that they're probably going to go in saying we can't do that. Boston was the team last year that had a a, a grasp on the finals until they started turning the ball over too much Tatum, you know, for man, has anybody had 
more swings and ups and downs than, than Tatum, just like the last three or four games between the game six and the way it started versus the way it ended, the game seven. Um, and and then in, at the end of, of game one here, just three, essentially three turnovers in a row, uh, pretty bad ones, ones oh, where, man. again, as you said, where he looks shook. And it's like, if anybody's not going to, you're going to theorize someone, build them in a lab and say like, this person will not be or look shook at any point. I'm going to go with the guy that has 51 points in a game seven, the guy that comes through and hits three, four huge shots. I mean, literally season saving shots for you at the end of a game six, where he started one for 13 or one for 14 or whatever it was. He just looked completely spooked uh, where he's picking up the ball at weird times. He's throwing the ball away. He's traveling at, at home. It, it, to start a series so again it's not the end of the world but it's just you know uh it, it, it's a situation much like when we saw game one in the last series for them where it's like they should be able to win this sort of game they're they're battle tested enough they've got the guys they came out and and at one point looked like they were prepared to throw a knockout punch in the second quarter uh that's what is so fascinating but scary about this boston team but again when it comes to miami knowing who they are knowing exactly what they are spolstra knowing this situation this scenario versus joe Missoula, maybe not knowing it is, is a first-time head coach uh miami was in 54 games in the clutch during the regular season the only team 54 keep in mind they only play 82 uh it, it's you know it's, it's, heat pistons without Cade cunningham coming down to the wire here <laughs> it, it's it's just a lot to think about but it's like you feel like there are a lot of times in these games you play that many games in the clutch and you've got a guy like butler who by the way was in that clutch player of the year award i understood why it went to fox i voted for him but butler was second on my ballot for a reason is that you play at this tempo at this pace with this many close games you know how to handle the situations um you would think boston does too just given how many times they've been at this stage but Miami way, looked the part. I was just about to say about Jimmy Butler, who makes these declarations like, I'm the best player in the world. I'm going to lead us. Everyone's doubting us. And I once said about Brett Brown that his voice and his enthusiasm, if he told me today, like gather a bunch of guys together, I'm like, we're going to rob a bank. Here's how we're going to do it. We're going to rob a bank. We're going to drop all our lives. We're going to rob a bank. I'm like, yes, let's do it. Brett Brown has a plan. I'm beginning to think that way about Jimmy Butler. If Jimmy Butler was like, all right, let's get together. We're going to rob a bank. I got the blueprint. I'd be like, you know what? I think we're going to pull off this heist scot-free. Let's do it. And that reminded me of the other big story from this final the conference finals, which I somehow missed. Did you see anything about Joe Missoula's obsession with the town? I saw it, and I put it in my bookmarks to read later. I haven't it read it yet. said he watches it four times a week, which seems... Oh, boy. <laughs> that seems like a like a like I like the town. I'm a sucker for any heist movie. The nun car chase through the streets of Boston is an all timer. The plan to rob Fenway Park, I, I didn't really get. Seemed like a bad idea from, from the get go. <laughs> if he's watching the town, Joe Mazzula has like children. If he's watching the town four times a week, I think I'm legitimately alarmed by that. That's alarm. I wouldn't. I don't think I would watch anything four times a week. And I four love times. heist movies. It's alarming to me. I I mean, I love Breaking Bad. I've got movies that I watch sometimes that I've even watched. I've, I've got heist movies that I've watched that I put on in the background and I almost use it as almost like an, a sort of hourglass. There's a 
Stanley Kubrick movie called The Killing, which I, for anyone that hasn't seen it, I think it came out in like 1956. It's black and white, but it's wonderful. But I, it's like exactly an hour and a half long. And so I've watched it so many times to where I know what happens. I don't have to actually actively be watching it to keep up with it. But I, I, I could imagine there are a lot of people who are like, yo, it's great and everything that you watch the town and that you love it that much. Cool. It's got the Boston connection. Cool. Are you going to call a timeout next time we get just molly whopped in a third quarter? I imagine you don't there are get a lot to call a timeout in the that. middle of a bank robbery, Chris. There's no timeouts. You can't tell the police yeah. timeout. Our car just maybe, lost two doors maybe and in has the, no windshield. Maybe in the director's cut there is uh, something. I don't know an alternative, but I this, I, I was like, I, I was a little miffed by the idea of like what was it forty six to twenty five in the third, with with just yeah it was a, a disastrous third quarter in part because of what we both mentioned the way it ended just kind of hit even harder uh, and then really gave Miami even more momentum going into that fourth. I mean, I like the town. <laughs> I'll be honest too. in saying I haven't seen, I'm actually a, a decently big movie person, but I've never seen the town. I've, 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 I've seen mystic river and I've told myself, man, it's going to be a minute before I watch that one again. It's a mystic fantastic river movie. Seems too depressing for me. I'm out so, on- so the town is not like that. I mean, look, it's a heist movie. Because I feel like you, a lot of Boston movies are like very, very dark in some way. I, I feel like Mystic River's subject matter is even darker, and a heist movie is just is is a little more. There were none masks in one of the robberies. I mean, like if you saw a car, <laughs> if I saw a car of bank robbers wearing none masks driving by me, I would be like, "Can I? Is it too late for me to get in on this?" Part of <laughs> the reason I mask. Part of the reason I bookmarked the story about the, which by the way is like a really fun story to read like on the eve of a you know of a conference final starting because you're reading so much x's no stuff or at least i am uh part of the reason i bookmark it and didn't read it is because i haven't seen it i was like this is a good opportunity to watch it when i get a minute um since i haven't already but i feel like i've seen a lot of boston movies what was the was it the departed and there's there's a bunch of them at this point so i feel like i've seen a lot but i have not watched the town yet uh the town is a b i would give it a b plus it's entertaining all the way through it's not it's not a top five heist movie for me. Um, I'd have to sit down and think about what my watch top the killing. Five. It'll be a top five for you. It, I think it is. So it's a heist movie as far as Kubrick movies. It's a heist movie at a horse racetrack. It is. It is from nineteen. I'm in. That's it. I'm in. It's and here's the other thing. It's non-linear. How many non-linear movies were there in 1956? Like it goes back and forth in time. It is so cool. I like let me, everybody on this podcast. Listen, w- go watch The Killing when you get a chance. Go. Let me find give you Amazon a window program. into my sad suburban dad life. <laughs> There's a few of us wee dads in the neighborhood who want to start a heist movie of the month club and like go through all the oh, classic heist boy. movies that either one of us or some of us haven't seen. Also. There's a carnival at our children's school every May, um, and last has it happened year, yet? It happened last okay. year, and we all all the parents volunteer and like work carnival stands. And you you better believe, by the way, that I'm taunting the children who fail at my game. That's like I'm just like it's it's, it's my favorite to it, thing bro. to do. Um, <laughs> uh, and we went to one of the dad's houses, had some drinks last year after the Friday night of the carnival, and we began plotting. Like, if all of our lives don't work out in the next couple of years, could we, could our starter heist be the carnival? Because we feel like oh we're on God. the inside already. And how would we do it? How and are you announcing the- this on a podcast with the following that you, <laughs> I guess it's not going to happen now. 
<laughs> or is it? Or is it? Um, okay. <clears throat> Let me ask you one big question from this game. Sure. How in the world did Miami limit the Celtics to 29 three-point attempts? Because the Celtics shoot a ton of threes, and Miami's defense, often by design, though not so much in this game, gives up a ton of threes. How did they do this? What did you see? I mean, so they come up on you, um, and and this is part of what was surprising about it. They'll come up on you, particularly when it's Tatum and Brown. They play further up when they realize it's like an all-star, all-NBA level ball handler. Um, but I think what the big thing was is that for a while, Boston was seeing, rightfully so, oh, the basket is clear to some extent. They were going right at the basket, whether it was Marcus Smart, whether it's Smart throwing two or three lobs to Rob Williams like he did. And so that was a healthy form of offense for them. Again, I think the question is, why did Boston get away from it uh, at, a, at a certain point of really attacking? Uh, and I think a lot of it was the turnovers. A lot of it was uh, difficult shots, some of which they made that were kind of more in the mid-range. Um, and some of it, and we've said this before sometimes, we have gotten to a lot of the end of the games where we look up and Jalen Brown hasn't taken a shot in X amount of time. And last night, it was actually the opposite where he got plenty of shots towards the end of the game. Some of them were tough shots. Um, he turned the ball over a decent amount of times as well. But sometimes when it feels like almost at the way at the end of the game where Tatum all of a sudden was trying to make something happen, um, you're going to kind of have a little bit more tunnel vision in those moments. And you're not going to see guys that might be open, may not be open, but you're not moving the ball around because, as I mentioned, Tatum didn't have any field goal attempts in the fourth quarter. All of a sudden, it looked like he was trying to make up for the fact that he didn't, and that's where you saw the travels and all the other mistakes and and mental mistakes come in. So some of it, I think, is is self-inflicted by Boston. Some of it is Miami recovering very well, too, um, at, at, at times to make sure that you know, they don't want to give up those shots and they're making a point to not give them up. They're going to surrender the rim to make sure that they don't give them up because they realize that's one of the ways that they can get beat. I think Bam switching, his switchability is a big deal because if if you form a shell, then you, it's harder to get to the rim. Mm -hmm. I thought the Heat found something in this game with, and it's not just this game, the um, Vincent, Lowry, Butler, Martin, Bam. That's all, there's no obvious glaring defensive nope. weak spot in that group you want to say that Vincent and Lowry are huntable but Lowry is a fire hydrant you can't move him and Vincent's no. tough as hell and moves his feet well in the lineup the, the, the guy they kept hunting was Struess and or Love neither guys on the floor that group is plus 10 and 16 minutes for the playoffs part of it is that when the Heat do help when they show help like one of those Tatum turnovers I think it was the pass he threw away um, they're loading toward him but they're on they're on their toes and they're kind of shifting one way or another. They make you indecisive. They don't yes. give you an obvious decision. They make your decision making difficult. Is that oh he's not open? Is the oh the driving lane's not open? And that's yeah. a credit. Um, that's a credit to them as well. The turnovers was part of it. Um, and the other thing I'm paying attention to is, you know, I said from even before the series that I thought the Sixers Celtics series was a Rob Williams-Al Horford series. Rob Williams on P.J. Tucker, Horford on Embiid. Yeah. I said that before the series. It took them a long time to get there, but they got there. This series is a trickier one for that group 
because you've got to start Al on Kevin Love and Robert Williams on Bam, which is fine, but he loses the rover ability because of the way they move Bam around the floor and use him um, as a as a facilitator. And that uh, Horford and Rob were minus ten in eighteen minutes. They were the Celtics were minus ten in eighteen minutes with those two on the floor, and uh, their best stretch of offense was that second quarter that we've referenced, where Horford was the only big guy on the floor, and they just open up the entire floor and drive and attack the rim and there's no rim protection there because they're all spaced around the three-point arc their offense has looked really good in that alignment and I just I'm not saying they shouldn't they should not start Robert Williams I think that'd be a dramatic re-pivot this early in the series but that minutes distribution is going to be really interesting to watch how many minutes do you give the double big group is this the series for that do you try to line up the minutes with Caleb Martin, but he's shooting. Th- There's no PJ Tucker on this team who's just a standstill no. shooter. Nobody is just standing still. Everyone's moving around. That was the we, we had to do a, a roundtable of sorts at Sports Illustrated, and um, we were asked in the roundtable like, "What's the matchup you're watching in this series?" And that was what I mentioned. Is that I think, as you said, there's not an obvious person to just kind of plug. Robert Williams on here and I think that's kind of the point of what Miami is doing is that Kevin Love for as wonderful as he is and and the impact that he makes by the way he had a couple of big shots last night but also had the you know his his trademark outlet pass and everything that they were beating them in transition with um Robert Williams doesn't have a natural guy that he can guard because even Kevin Love is only on the floor for 15 minutes a night he's starting but they're really using Lowry kind of in effect as a starter uh, in terms of the minutes he plays when he's playing when he's on the floor and so where do you utilize him particularly as as we said Miami is much bigger than their regular season three-point percentage number would suggest they're they're much better than that and they're showing it in the playoffs you can't rely on the idea that like oh their shooting will come back down to earth Milwaukee probably thought the same thing um so it's it's a huge series from that standpoint. Also, Robert Williams had some really great moments in the game yesterday. I mean, he had a couple of big offensive rebounds and and, and put back fourteen and seven he, offensively. I thought he had a good game. He had a very good game. Uh, I mean, he he had a couple of the lobs that Marcus Smart was finding him with, where he was along the back line, just kind of creeping along the back line. Uh, he also, is, if we're going to talk about the mistake that Brogdon made. Uh, the the save that Robert Williams had Oof. to Kevin Love was just brutal, and it felt like that was uh, maybe not a turning point moment, but just like in a third quarter where stuff was starting to go wrong. That just felt like, oh, we we got to stop here, and then to save it there was just a you know we talk about brain parts, we can't excuse that one necessarily. Bam is also really good at when a Heat ball handler is kind of just you know slowly burrowing his way in on the pick and roll. Jimmy likes to go like almost all the way under the rim. He hides right there. He's really good at just little loop cuts around and changing Mm -hmm. places. And Rob has had trouble in game one. He lost him a couple of times. At one point he rotated to a place that Bam was before and no longer was. And Bam was over here for a floater. (laughs) That's really that that's an area they got to clean up to. Um, Look, I will not say who, who this is, to spare them the indignity, but in Chicago yesterday, someone asked me, hey, where are you, where are you going to next? And I said, I think I'm going to go up to Boston uh, for game five. And this person snickered, if necessary. And I said, oh, I think it's going to oh, be wow. necessary. I think it's going to be necessary. <laughs> and now it's very necessary. And uh, the Heat just keep doing this. Chris Herring, Sports Illustrated, writing a ton, podcasting a ton. 
Um, anything you'd like to promote other than your best-selling book, Blood in the Garden, which was which was extra relevant last round between the Heat and the Knicks? It it, it was it was. Uh, well, thank you for having me as always. Uh, I'll have something bigger coming this this coming week. Uh, so not this week, but but next week, and uh, I'll get back to work on on book number two, which I can't say exactly what it is. I think you know I've talked to you about it, but. Uh, but uh, I'll I'll get back to work with that when I can when when time allows for it. But I've I've got big stuff on the way. Hopefully. Well, I've got to go because one of my buddies has turned his garage into a uh, full scale model of the carnival money storage uh, location. <laughs> so we're doing a we're doing a rehearsal heist uh, in a couple man. hours. So I got to go prepare for that. We we covered law and crime, man. Don't don't get caught up. You you have a good thing going. Uh, I don't know. We don't want to have to give the the John Morant speeches to you from the standpoint of. Uh, Chris Herring, enough, enough, Chris Herring. I'll talk to you soon, buddy. (laughs) All right, buddy. Thanks for having me. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply.